What's up, everyone? I am Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best and the Rest. Our weekly show hitting everything you need to know in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. So this week's show is a little different. We're on the cusp of a new year, and we're bringing in our A-team of writers, editors, and experts to talk a little bit about the future of food. We've got a lot of opinions, some bold forecasts, and of course, plenty of tangents. Full disclosure, we recorded this episode in the waning weeks of 2019. First up, we've got Thrillist Executive Food Editor, Nicole Taylor, here to help set this whole shebang up. What's up, Nicole? What's up, Will Fulton? How are you today? Oh my gosh, crazy times, Will. I know, it's the end of a decade and the start of something new. Yeah, I'm like so confused when people say it's the end of the decade. Should I get excited, scared, jump up and down? What exactly am I supposed to be doing? Well, that's a pretty good question because (laughs) (laughs) it depends. What are you personally excited about in 2020? Okay, so this is food. This is not restaurants, but I feel like nut milks are having a moment. Okay. Um, Actually, a friend told me the other day, he was like, oh my gosh, what's oat milk? And I'm like, are you living up under a rock? Like, did you sleep? The entire 2019, because oat milk is a thing, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, 2020, I think we'll see more pecan milks. Sure. We'll see more peanut milks, macadamia. People are totally going to switch out their oat to nuts. Is there one thing uh, in the food world or in the restaurant world that you wish would go away in 2020? <sighs> Celebrating Cinco de Mayo. What? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, that's out of style in 2020. Oh, my God. That's a hot take that I don't particularly like. That's a fact. That's not a hot take. I mean, yo, Cinco de Mayo is not even real. Mm. I think people are coming a little bit more culturally sensitive about certain things. So I think you're going to see less boisterous Cinco de Mayo celebrations. The secret Cinco de Mayo party? Yeah. Well, that's bad news for me. I, I mean, I don't go out and celebrate Cinco de Mayo, but it's kind of fun. Get a margarita. I get. I mean, but you can have a margarita, mezcal. You don't have to wait till May fifth to do that. You can do that any time of the year, any time of the day. Yeah. Any day of the week. I know you love fast food. <laughs> <laughs> I know you love some type of fast food. I do right? love some type of fast food. Popeye's chicken sandwich. Do you think it's going to continue to be popular? Or you think eh, people are going to get sick of it? I think it's going to go out of style in twenty twenty. Mm, okay. These are some bold predictions, Nicole, and yeah. I like it. You like it. So speaking of Popeye's chicken sandwich. We're going to bring on Kat Thompson and Tony Maravich from Thrillist to talk about what they think will happen in fast food in 2020. Nicole, thanks so much for helping me set this up. Thank you, Will. See you in 2020. Stick around. We'll be right back. All right. We are here with senior news editor Tony Maravich and staff writer Kat Thompson. Okay. So right now we want to talk a little bit about what the fast food world will look like in the year 2020. I think the first thing I want to bring up is plant-based protein. I'm talking about your Impossible Whoppers, your Dunkin' Beyond Sausage. That was a big thing in 2019. Do you think that we'll see more forays into plant-based meats? And what would that even look like? I think we 100% will see more plant-based meats. I know that um, Beyond is currently working on a plant-based bacon and bacon is like a huge thing that people are always like oh I can never give up bacon so this will be interesting to see like how that works out but um I'm just curious to see how the texture will be especially with like the fat ratio of bacon which is like the best part of bacon I know Pizza Hut tested a 
plant-based sausage pizza. And same with KFC. They also tested a vegan Kentucky fried chicken. So there's been a lot of tests, but I think looking towards the future next year, I think there's definitely going to be new menu items that are to become mainstays. I have not heard this many people just around talking about Burger King um, since <laughs> yeah. I don't know when. And I, it's all because of the Impossible Whopper. And I think the texture in the Impossible Whopper is great. But yeah, if they could nail bacon that has that mouthfeel. Yeah, so so far, everything that they've been developing has been a ground texture. So mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see how they're, they're going to do that. And also even with like chicken, because I feel like any sort of plant-based chicken is always a little bit spongy. It doesn't have that shredded texture. Yeah. So I'm curious to see like in the future, what if there's plant-based like carnitas that has like the shredded texture, a plant-based steak. I feel like that's going to happen maybe not next year, but definitely mm-hmm. in the future, there's going to be something like that. And honestly, the biggest fast food player of them all has yet to do anything plant-based in the United States, and that's McDonald's, mm, yeah. right? Yeah. They have been testing a plant-based burger in Canada, I think, and from what it seems like, it's not a particular hit. Wow, yeah, really? Yeah, it's not going well. Oh, so. no. Well, this is just, you know, reports, but I'd be surprised if we go through 2020 without McDonald's putting anything on the market like that in the U.S. Yeah. Do you think that people who aren't vegetarian or vegan are you just going to gravitate towards these menu items just because not only are they novelty but they're kind of good yeah for sure i'm not even like a flexitarian i'm a full-on meat eater carnivore meat boy yeah and meat boy <laughs> you know what i'll i just want to try this stuff because it interests me but also i think people even if they're not vegetarians and i'm in no way shape or form a vegetarian want to be able to reduce their meat intake for like sustainability reasons or it's way more fun now to order two uppers yeah and then do side by side comparisons yeah that gives an excuse to order two uppers yeah there you go <laughs> So I want to talk a little bit about the self-ordering kiosks that I've definitely seen more of pop up this past year. Do you think this is something that we'll see gain even more traction in 2020? Self-ordering kiosks? Yeah. Ordering from the app and picking it up is where it's at right Whoa. now. Whoa. <laughs> you're a step ahead. Yeah, you're, no. you're ahead. Ordering from the respective fast food chain's mobile app and then picking it up instead of waiting in line, instead of even waiting in line to use a kiosk mm-hmm. is where it's at. Like a few weeks ago, I ordered Wendy's. Got my spicy chicken sandwich. Of course. <laughs> and the app asks you when you're there and you just hit that. Yes. And my order was put in the queue. Wow. So I didn't have to touch a gross menu kiosk <laughs> and I didn't have to wait in line. I actually do like the kiosks and ordering through an app, just anything like that, because it becomes a lot easier to customize your yeah. order. Chipotle takes it to the next level where you order in the app and then you pick it up in the restaurant and it's just waiting for you on a shelf. Yeah. yeah. Like there's zero human interaction. <laughs> yeah. No people, 2020. No people. Yeah. <laughs> we have to talk about chicken sandwiches. Obviously, the Popeye's chicken sandwich, I, it's hard for me to remember a time where a fast food dish was more hyped. Do you think there will be another crazy popular fast food item? Will that ever happen again? I feel like there is a moment like this every year. Maybe not to the point where it's like, oh, Popeye's has sold out nationwide for three months. But yeah. I think when the Doritos Locos Taco launched, that was crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, when the KFC Double Down launched, people were first laughing at that. And then they're like, oh, <laughs> shit, using chicken as buns is actually kind of cool. Yeah. I think there's always innovations that are going to come. McDonald's is working on its Popeye's killer. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. That looks like it'll be coming out next year. I'm actually more interested to see what Popeye's does to the chicken sandwich to keep it at the top of the game. Yeah. I definitely think chicken is still going to be prevalent in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Like, do you guys know Raising Cane's? 
I do not. No. That's a West Coast chain, but it's like chicken tenders is their specialty. And I think other types of chicken are going to get into the conversation. Nashville hot chicken is huge. Um, KFC has a version of hot chicken. And I think hot chicken is going to creep its way into the mainstream as well. And then also like chicken and sweets is like a thing that people have always liked. So KFC has chicken and waffles now. Yeah. Um, and they tested chicken and donuts at some various locations. Really? So I think, yeah. So I think oh, God. <laughs> salt and sweet people like, and I think maybe there'll be more chicken and donuts, chicken and waffles, chicken and pancakes, yeah. chicken and sweet stuff is mm-hmm. my prediction. You know, it's actually interesting because you see a lot of places, again, like around New York that will do a donut chicken sandwich or a donut burger. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a little surprising that no fast food place has really leaned into that and just gone with like a glazed bun. Seems like yeah. something that someone... Is eventually going to try. Yeah, yeah, somebody needs to team up with Krispy Kreme and get those donuts for the partnership. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, speaking of fast food menus, trying different things, uh, Taco Bell notably slashed a bunch of its menu items this year. On the other hand, places like Burger King seem to be growing exponentially bigger in a bunch of different directions. They have tacos now, right? Yeah, they do. Which, yeah, pretty mediocre yeah, tacos. Don't, don't, don't eat them. <laughs> I know, I've heard. Sorry, Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> Just stick to what you're good at. Yeah. And then like in terms of like Taco Bell, a lot of the cuts are things that can be made through customizations. Mm -hmm. You can still get your burrito grilled. You can still add beef to a certain dish. Like it's still possible to try to achieve the thing that you're trying to eat without actually having it as like a fully formed menu item. Do you think fast food giants will lean more towards simplicity or a really stuffed menu where they're trying to do a whole bunch of different things? I think they're going to go with simple. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, even just look at McDonald's's menu. They have 15 sandwiches total right now. That's it. That seems like less than what it used to be. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if fast food chains are sort of, like, simplifying their menu, sticking to, like, the ones that really sell well and people really love. Or, like, look at In-N-Out's menu. It's so small. Right. Yeah. And it is the best. There's not a lot of choice. Sometimes that's what you want. Yeah. You know? Like, do what you need to do and do it mm-hmm. well. Yeah, yeah they, they added hot chocolate for kids, like, that a was year a, or two yeah. ago, and people were freaking out. <laughs> oh, my purists, God. Huh? And we're like, it's hot chocolate. <laughs> I was so happy when they did that. It's just like Ghirardelli's hot chocolate, too. Yeah. But oh. that was, like, their first menu edition in, like, 10 or 15 yeah, years. That's crazy. Time. Yeah. That's so fun. Um, yeah. So what are the best parts of fast food right now, aside from hot chocolate? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's obviously fast food Twitter. Branded Twitter is just an interesting look at <laughs> our capitalistic society. Whatever. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but Wendy's is great. They like had a post where they just talked about their favorite movies of the year. Mm-hmm. And it was like super <laughs> insightful. I think they were talking about The Farewell was one of their favorite movies. And the director of The Farewell was like super honored. And there was an interaction with Wendy's. <laughs> That's so funny. And it was like kind of pure and nice. Some of these brand Twitters, especially Wendy's, yeah. like, I can't believe how funny they are. Yes. It's like on one hand, they're like talking about the best movies of the year in like a really thoughtful way. And then on the other, they will like roast the shit out of another chain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's great. Yeah. Wendy's for sure is my favorite. I'm just so tired of it. I'm, I'm feeling the Twitter <laughs> spat fast food or like brand spats on Twitter. I'm just feeling like a lot of fatigue around that. Yeah. Do you feel like they're uh, highly orchestrated and not organic? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they all are, but like I'm just not that amused by them anymore i want the trolling to be grander than that do something in real life to troll the hell out of them like why does it have to be on twitter because that's what's the most convenient probably yeah it's easy low yeah. Live. yeah but it's like like when popeyes relaunched their chicken sandwich they did it purposefully on a sunday so that 
you know, mm-hmm. and it was also happened to be national sandwich day. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted a sandwich on national sandwich day and you wanted Popeye's versus Chick-fil-A, you'd have to go to Popeye's. That was like a, a troll that was smart. Yeah. And offline. That's good. Yeah. So what are you two looking forward to most in 2020? I'm excited for Taco Bell's new fried chicken strips to come out. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's going to go nationwide next year. Something to look forward to, huh? No, truly. Yeah. Like they are fried chicken strips and the batter has tortilla chips in it. So it's like their own twist on fried chicken. Chicken tenders, you guys. I'm telling you. Ooh. (laughs) If Yeah. If 2020 is the year of chicken tenders, I'm fucking fine with that. I feel like... Every five-year-old would be really happy. <laughs> yeah. And the five-year-old inside of everyone. Yeah, exactly. Will bleed for joy. Exactly. Kat, is that what you're most excited for? Um, I was thinking about the plant-based meats. Yeah. If the bacon one comes out, if someone makes a fully vegan cheeseburger, I'd be interested in trying that. Looking forward to 2020 in the world of fast food. Yeah. Some good stuff going. Go. I'm going to eat a bunch of shit next year. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be real greasy. <laughs> Yeah, pray for me. I'm excited. Me too. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Will. Next up, my conversation with Jeremy Jacobowitz, a.k.a. Brunch Boys on Instagram. He's going to talk about how social media will continue to affect food in 2020 and also how to take a better picture of food for your own Instagram. Check it out right after this extremely quick break. All right, I am here with Jeremy Jacobowitz, a.k.a. Brunch Boys. You probably know him from Instagram. How many followers do you have now, Jeremy? Uh, Who's counting? 457,000 something? You're counting. (laughs) I would count too. (laughs) I look at it every day and I reload (laughs) the data every two seconds. (laughs) So from what I understand, you started the account just for fun while you were working as a TV producer for Bobby Flay. Yeah, exactly. No, there's no thought to the influencer world. There's no thought to anything. It was literally, I was producer just I, between gigs. I'm like, oh, I'll make some videos. There wasn't even a point to have an Instagram at first. It was, let's make these videos because there were no videos on Instagram. But I picked the name Brunch Boys for the show I was going to do. And I was like, oh, no, own the name on Instagram too, I guess. And that's how it started. There was no thought put into it at all. Really? <laughs> so you were always kind of into food. Yeah, I mean, that wasn't always my career path, but I was always into food. I, I actually, I studied sports management at NYU, and then I started working in sports TV, and I did that for years. And then I just wanted to change and and ended up in food TV almost by accident. It was just a gig. I was just, I was just a PA, and I happened to get the job. And I was like, oh, wow, like, I love food. I, I love food TV. Like, I obviously, I like working in TV. Why didn't I ever connect these dots? So why Brunch Boys? Have you always had an affinity for brunch? I picked brunch for a few reasons. One of them was, I mean, at the time, yes, I, I love brunch. I just like that idea, that way of eating the f- particular foods that are there. And you're eating, you're drinking, mm-hmm. you're hanging out with friends. I like the whole idea of it. But it's also strategic. So I'm like, okay, I can't make a better food travel video than anybody else. I don't have the budget to do that. I'm on camera, not the greatest host. I'm like, okay, well then, what's going to make me different? What's going to separate this video from everybody else's? I'm like, well, I love brunch. All my friends love brunch. Nobody touches brunch anywhere in media. I would pitch brunch for different segments on shows and they'd be like, brunch is New York and LA. Our audience, not New York and LA. We don't care. And I was like, huh, all right, well, this project is just supposed to be what I'm interested in. It's not supposed to be for anything else. So I'll just produce for me and my friends. We all love brunch. Yeah. And that was really it. Just part strategic, part what I love and sort of melding it all together. Obviously, you don't post every single meal you have. Yeah. Do you still take a picture? I mean, most, I'd say most of my meals I don't take photos of just because I I cook a lot for myself Mm -hmm. and I cook the same things over and over again. So I'm like, if I really took the time to post every day what I ate every day, people would be like, oh, 
your life is boring. <laughs> so I share it here and there a little bit. But yeah, even if I'm just out with my friends, I don't like, oh, I don't open a story. This is what I'm doing. The restaurants love it. So like, I feel a little obligated. Like, hey, I'm here. You know, give them a little love. Is this your full-time job? And do your parents understand what you do for a living? Huh. Well, it is my full-time job. In terms of explaining, I mean, I barely know how to explain to people what I do because I hate like every word. I'm like, I yeah. guess at the end of the day, I'm an influencer because I get paid to put stuff out and influence people. Just like that word feels weird. My dad understands like I sell ads. So he's always like, who did you sell an ad to this week? So he okay. understands that. But like even my my grandfather, it took him a while. He's 95. He has an iPhone. He's on Instagram. He watches my stories every day. He That's like so cool. understands it way better than even my dad. It took him a while because every time I see him, he'd be like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. He's like, no, 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 but like, you don't have a job. Like, are you okay? I'm like, no, like I'm getting paid. It's, it's fine. Are you ever concerned about the sustainability of that moving forward? About, um, you know, people changing, people getting off Instagram, a kind of a backlash to this whole culture of posting food and um, again, the influencer yeah. culture. I don't know. I just say, I mean, there's certainly a fear always of like, well, you know, people are fickle and where to let it go. Mm-hmm. Instagram and Facebook have done an amazing job of continuing to grow and adapting. I mean, in terms of the culture, I think like, I always give this example. My audience is more later 20s, New York, whatever. Yeah. Um, but so if you're 28, you didn't grow up with this influencer culture. So you like what I do and you're influenced enough by what I do. But I think there's still this divide of like, well, okay, you're an influencer. Okay, we get it. If you're 20, you grew up with going online and seeing what the Kardashians were doing and then going to buy it. There's right. no weird thing about it. That is just how life works. You look on the internet, people tell you what to do, and then you do it. So I think like these people growing up just like gives us even more power to it. I think it's only going to get bigger. And then you look at the way advertising works too. I always say like, where are these companies going to go to spend money? Mm-hmm. You don't have a TV. You don't like traditional advertising in any single way. You're very savvy, but you're on your phone every second. Yeah, And you look up to these people. Right. So I, I just think it's going to get even more powerful. You know, you talk about the rising popularity of brunch. I think a lot of it is propelled by Instagram and propelled by experience. Do you think that we've seen a rise in restaurants who are highly cognizant about their aesthetics, specifically to appeal to an Instagram generation? 100%. And I think it's silly if they don't. Yeah. You have to think about the way the dishes come out. You have to think about the way the restaurant looks inside of it. I don't think you need like a neon sign everyone's going to take photos of, but I think you certainly are going to think about the fact that like everyone in here is taking photos. And if people are here and they're able to take better photos than other places, they're going to be more likely to share it. Sure. And then you even see restaurants, you know, so we're recording this right now in Soho in New York. There's um, Pietro Nolita, which Mm. is right down the street. It's all millennial pink. And I Mm -hmm. think uh, Sketch in London is the same thing. It's pink. You see a restaurant like that, and I think it's easy for people to be like, is this whole thing a gimmick? Right. It, that's exactly it. Yeah. It, it's and I'm not exactly saying those restaurants are. No. I'm just, those are examples. But no, I mean, I think that for a purist, someone that's, let's, let's just say an older generation, I wonder if it's easy to worry about if aesthetics and appealing to potential social media photographers is more important than the meal you're getting. The first thing people do when they find out about a restaurant is go to their Instagram page. It's true. It's vital. Yeah. You don't need to like have a million followers as a restaurant, but you should at least have like a nice enough page and like make sure the food is presented in the way that you want it to present. And again, like give them the vibe of what they're going to get when they come in there. Totally. I look at a restaurant like Prince Street Pizza, which mm-hmm. is a pizza shop in Soho. I started working here at Thrillis about five years ago, and I would go there for lunch. I would just be able to pop in. They served beer back then, grab a Peroni, get a slice, and just kind of hang out during lunch. And now there is like a 40-person line there right when it opens. Yeah, And I have to say, I think that 
how they got so popular was just really upping their Instagram game and having celebrities post and doing uh-huh. that kind of yeah. legwork. And I, I really think that that is a true Instagram success story because they're very active and they do a really good job of making it seem like, hey, when you visit New York, this is a you cool place to go. To go. Yeah. It's yeah. so funny. On my walk over here, I was walking past there and there's a dude on the corner of the big slice just housing it and there's <laughs> cheese ever and he was so happy and I was like, you know what? I just want to like pat that dude in the back. I'm like, you're, you're having a good fucking day. <laughs> and it's good too. That's the other thing. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Have you seen the quality of food at places being sacrificed in order to attain some type of intriguing aesthetic? I don't know if I've seen that. I've certainly seen restaurants blow up on social media that I don't think have good food. Right. And it's only because they played the Instagram game. And it's what you want to do. Listen, if they're successful, God bless them. In New York City, it's so hard to have a successful restaurant. It doesn't mean I want to go in there and post about it just because everybody else is just because it's this viral thing. Mm -hmm. So when you look ahead to next year to 2020, do you think that Instagram is already changing into more of a vehicle for people to discover new and interesting foods that they might not have tried more so than just watching cheese ooze out of a grilled cheese sandwich. I mean, that that's what I try and achieve with my account, at least. I always say like a really important number that nobody really ever asked me about is mm-hmm. the number of saves. I'll example of restaurant. Okay, I go to this restaurant, post a photo of their cheeseburger. If a thousand people took the time to save that post, that probably means they're going to go buy that cheeseburger. Do you think there are certain foods that we will see more of on our feeds in 2020? I think there's been a little bit of a backlash um, just towards food that is purely made for Instagram. Yeah. And like I said, restaurants have to think about this, but I think people see through the fakeness of it. Stunt foods, really. Yeah, exactly. It's all those simple things that just think are really delicious and unique and different that people really, really have a visceral reaction to more and more. I think like that's what's really cool. Definitely. I actually think even, you know, working for Thrillist, which is obviously highly focused on food, I do think that there has been a little bit of a shift between, hey, let's look at this burger and the bun's a donut and it's filled with this cheese made from a goat that's a hundred years old and it's like all of it it's just so many layers and layers and it's just like no this is just like a really good meal that you would want to have yourself and i think that goes back to people using instagram more for like i want i want to try that more than just like whoa look at that and i think that's kind of the evolution especially of social media in food Mm -hmm. and i kind of hope it continues because it's more of a real experience people even tend to trust you a little bit more because you're like, you're not in it just to show something outlandish. Even the content that seems too overproduced, people don't even enjoy it. And and my stuff is produced. Like I use real cameras, I use real lights, but the look and feel of what I want to do is, no, that's raw, it's real, you're with me. I think like the power of social media is making someone feel like they're eating with you. So even the choice of your lens that you use is really important. Like literal lens. Yeah, 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 like literal lens on the camera. Like if it's like a 16 uh, millimeter lens and you feel like you're with this burger with you is a different feeling than if you're shooting on a 70 to 200 and you're zooming in on the dish. It feels like it's far away from you. Yeah, totally. If you had one tip on how to take a better Instagram photo of food, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Lighting. Yes. Lighting. It's all about lighting and it's not turning the flash on in your iPhone. Yeah. Don't do that. Like when I go into a restaurant, the first thing I do is I scan the room and figure out where I want to shoot stuff. Mm. Normally it's by a window so I could have natural light, especially for photos. Videos, I have, I have my light with me. It's a little different of a feel. But for photos, like, no, 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 give me natural light. So I think that's the most important thing. And like, I would say if you're in a very dark place, take your friend's phone, put the napkin over that phone so it diffuses light a little bit and then shine it over the dish and it should get a beautiful photo. 
That's a great tip. And you have, okay. yeah, <laughs> like I know. <laughs> and natural aid, hey, works works very well with brunch. The winter makes it harder. Mm. I only have like a few hours every day now to shoot the way I want to shoot. You're out scrambling. Oh, it sucks. <laughs> Lots of good stuff. Okay, Jeremy, you know what? You do the plug. Where can people find you? You can find Brunch Boys everywhere. Brunch Boys on Instagram, Brunch Boys on YouTube. I have two podcasts. Yeah. One, I don't really do that often. It's called Brunch With. I kind of like when I'm inspired, I do interviews with people. Also, this is very random, but <laughs> I do a podcast called Monday Night Pod, Wrestling's War. It's all about the Monday Night Wars. It is a geek nerd deep dive into wrestling. I know there's not a lot of cross-section, I'm sure, between audiences, <laughs> but that I do every single week. Amazing. Well, this was great. I could talk to you all day. Let's get brunch sometime. Sure. Why not? I brunch every day. Jamie, thanks so much. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Next up, we got Zach Mack our beer expert. He's going to talk a little bit about the beers you should be drinking in the year 2020. But first up, time for an ad break. We'll be right back. Okay, we are here with Zach Mack, owner of ABC Beer Co. in Manhattan's East Village. He writes a lot about beer for Thrillist and is a certified Cicerone. Did I say that right? You almost got it right again. Ah, Cicerone. You, every Cicerone. Time, Cicerone. Cicerone my, sounds nice. What's my problem? Uh, just <laughs> for people who don't know and who didn't listen to our excellent episode, What's the Best Craft Beer in America, which Zach was heavily featured in, uh, what is a Cicerone? Cicerone sounds like a jaunty boat. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Cicerone is a, a certified beer expert, that, mm-hmm. some, similar to like a beer version of a sommelier, where you have a test and all kinds of qualifications to kind of dole out knowledge on, on the beer world. So basically... You know what you're talking about. I'd like to think I do. <laughs> yeah. I have a piece of paper that says that, and you can be the judge. Uh, I, I would <laughs> like to see that paper. I, why didn't we get that before you came in here? That's what I want to know. <laughs> before we talk about some beer trends that you expect to be big in 2020, uh, let's look back at 2019 real quick. What craft beer trends really pop out to you that you think maybe define the year? Oh, man. It's a tough... It's hard to say because what used to be months long or even years long in trends and beers become weeks and barely months long. So I think for 2019, the trend was more of a downswing of things that used to be the norm. Um, mm. There were less buy-ups of craft breweries by larger breweries oh, yeah. this year than there were in previous. Um, and there were also continuing trends of like a decrease of beer overall in alcohol consumption amongst Americans, but with a growth of craft within that consumption rate. So That's interesting. Yeah, it's actually, that's the trend that's superseded even the, the craft beer boom is people are drinking less beer in this country, but they're drinking more craft beer as a share of that part of the market. Okay. So uh, there is growth in beer. It all just kind of lies within craft. And I think in many ways, this was the decade of craft beer. Yeah, it's it's been, definitely been a decade to remember for craft beer because coming into this, you know, we had around, I think it was closer to 2,000 breweries in 2010. Mm-hmm. And now we're over 7,000. Like I said, that's astronomical growth, no matter how you look at it. Um, and it's completely shifted the culture of drinking beer in this country. So it's kind of, it's going to be fun to unpack this and then in 10 years, see what's actually happened. Yeah. We'll have you back on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if Thrillist exists, which I think yeah. maybe even bigger, stronger you know, than yeah, ever Honestly. Has. Yeah. I have a good feeling about that. <laughs> this will be a virtual reality podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be replaced with a robot though. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> you, you mentioned Americans are drinking less. Do you think that this is good news for low ABV beers? Honestly, so the first trend I wrote down when you asked me to come up with stuff was the the no and low ABV trend, mm. which is so big that even the big breweries are getting into it. But so even no, even no, yeah, yeah. like alcohol free beer has become so popular that even there's craft non alcoholic breweries that have popped up around the country and around the world now. Um, what, a few, do you know one that that sticks out in your mind? The big is, one that, that I've seen, especially in my experiences and selling stuff, is mm-hmm. with uh, Athletic Brewing. Yeah, um, out of Connecticut, these guys are doing a really really good job. 
making stuff. They've got like IPAs and stouts, not your just traditional, like straightforward lagers. They've got like a super secretive patented process and they make these really good beers that have become really popular with kind of like the fit crowd. It used to be that beer, non-alcoholic beer was sold for anyone who's in recovery or anyone who's just looking to, to drop alcohol out of their life. But it's now kind of taken this new form of the, the fit crowd and like the, the fit subculture wants something that they can go out and they can enjoy a beer without these side effects of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, but like some of the positive effects, like some of the electrolytes that get added to some of these products, the anti-inflammatory stuff that people use when they're working out, beer can be helpful in that. So I think that's like a huge kind of fuel for growth for that part of the industry. And also this is a way to win back some people who might want something when they go out that isn't, you know, branded like as a mocktail. They want something that's super easy to drink and this fits that bill. Do you think as far as craft breweries go that we'll see uh, an effort to simplify and streamline products in, in different types of craft beer? Or do you think things will go the opposite way where there will be much more categories and every craft brewery will just come out with almost anything they can? That's a hard question to answer sure, because yeah. the, I feel like every time the, the beer world feels content with itself, an, another brewer or a dozen so brewers will step up and be like, check out this crazy gimmick I've come up with. And depending on how viral it gets, it can spawn like a sub trend or sub fad. So honestly, I think this year there's going to be comfort and simplicity. You're seeing a lot of the best breweries pop up that are focusing on just making one, two or three things and making them incredibly well. And I think a lot of people, at least in the know, will gravitate towards that and which will eventually push people who may not know that much about beer, but want to drink stuff that's from nearby into drinking something like that. Yeah. It seems like brands in food and now, you know, as I know now, in drinks, simplicity is something that 2020, it seems to be a focal point yeah, coming up. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think we're leaving a decade of like pumpkin birthday cake Oreos yeah. and like any kind of crazy twist on food that you know or drink that you know into one where people might be like, you know what, I just want an IPA the way that it t- tasted in 2014. Sure. And you want to know, okay, this this place makes a great IPA because that's what they're committed to. They're yeah. not committed to trying a million different things and spreading themselves too thin. Yeah. And not even just IPA focused breweries because I feel like every brewery feels like they have to be in the IPA game. It's just like, we're just doing a weird take on like a Belgian session farmhouse sale that we think people will like and doing like a few subsets of that. I actually think that's why people love Trader Joe's so much is because there's not really a choice. It's like, it's just one brand. Yeah. Yeah. People love to be told what they want in this country, Mm -hmm. but they need to come to that decision on their own. They can't know they were told they want it. Yes. So I think you're going to see a lot more brewers realizing that the more collectively they think, the more they can kind of control the invisible hand, especially as smaller and middle level breweries become larger in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see more of them realizing that certain things are just going to sell no matter what. Yeah. And then they're going to kind of control their own trend creation. Uh, What else do you see becoming big in 2020? I hate the prediction business, but... (laughs) Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think low and no ABV, but specifically low ABV for the people in the beer crowd. You know, there's the crowd that's looking for no alcohol, but there's also the crowd that's kind of clipping onto the tails of what Dogfish Head's done with like Sequench Ale that has, you know, Men's Health wrote it up or Men's Fitness. Oh God, don't kill me for <laughs> messing that up, journalists. They're, they're very similar. I know, they're very... <laughs> I think you're really okay. But they, uh, they were written up as se- having Sequench as the healthiest beer of the decade or whatever, healthiest, healthiest beer in the market because it's got electrolytes in it and it's super refreshing but it's also below 4% alcohol and under 100 calories. So you've seen a mad dash in the last few years, like Boulevard's got one called Easy Sport. They're releasing more beers that are below 100 calories and say so right on the can. Yeah. And low low ABV. So people who want to, you know, watch the waistline and still go out, have that opportunity. Hey, you defined me to a T. There you go. (laughs) What are a couple of breweries that you feel like we, as beer drinkers, should be keeping our eye on? Oh man, there are so, I don't even know how to answer that question. Yeah, I know it's tough. 
What about for you? Like, for me specifically? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm just excited by a lot of the growth I see. I'm biased obviously because I'm in New York City. So mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff I've seen here is now going to reach like beyond nascent phase. They're five years old at this point. So looking at people like in town, like Folksbeer, who are still making a name for themselves around the market. Um, I'm looking at breweries that are popping up in places like Portland that are already in a very crowded and esteemed brewing community that are going to become even bigger. But other than that, I mean, I could go on for like, we could do like six podcasts on this. <laughs> we could. Hey, we have time. <laughs> what time is it? Um, <laughs> just unplug the mics and I'll just talk at you for six hours. <laughs> That's fine. That sounds like my ideal Friday night. I have to say Zach back. <laughs> um, so I'm sure you get this question a lot, probably more than anything else. Uh, what's the next IPA? And I don't know if it's what's the next IPA anymore. It's probably what's the next whatever is very popular right now. Well, if I could answer that question, I would not, I'd be, I'm no, no offense, I would be sitting in a boardroom someplace. Yeah. Um, the next IPA is probably an IPA. Um, the next version of it is going to be something different. Yeah. I think we've reached PKs and we've been saying that for 18 months now. So I think the next IPA is probably going to be a reversion to like West Coast style IPAs that we used to drink in crazy numbers like five years ago. And also that's going to be weirdly nostalgic now. People are going to go back to drinking IPAs without haze in it. Oh, the old days, huh? But honestly, I think the IPA reinventing itself is one of the great engines of innovation that keep people interested in craft beer. Not everybody, but a yeah. huge chunk of the market. Just keeps going, doesn't it? It really does. When we talk about bars or brewery, I'm that, I've, it's hard for me to say that word. Breweries. Breweries hard. Breweries. Brewery. When you talk about bars or breweries, do you think that there might be a trend uh, in the physical spaces or in the operation of the way people are selling alcohol, not just consuming it? Um, yes, honestly, that's actually the biggest thing I was, one of the trends I want to look for going to through the next decade, not just 2020, but the way we sell alcohol specifically related to online mm-hmm. and the way we can ship beer, wine and spirits across the country. Yeah. It's so complicated right now that even Jeff Bezos doesn't even want to try it. And you know, that means it pretty, it's gotta be pretty complicated. Right. So I think once there's a few cases that are coming up in front of the Supreme Court, it's one in Tennessee right now or coming from Tennessee right now that I think will shift the way we shop for beer online, which will blow the doors off on the beer market when you can sit on your couch in Chicago and get that like sought after whale shipped to you from California or New York or wherever, uh, without having to go wait in line for it, if you can get it that way. So, um, I honestly think the way that we do business going forward will be more like the Amazonification of things. Mm-hmm. For uh, better for or beer, worse, right? For better or worse. I don't think it's going to completely destroy the, the act of going out to buy a six-pack um, or go out and have a beer because I think that's culturally something we've proven doesn't disappear. You can buy wine online relatively easily or more easily than beer. Why do you think that change. is? Um, it has to do the way the law has been interpreted in the past, just like anything else. Everyone's really gun shy, specifically the couriers like FedEx and UPS, because it's one of the things that the government tightly regulates is the passage of alcohol across state lines. Yeah. Because I, there's taxes in place. So they always want you for your taxes. Ask Al Capone. <laughs> so, I mean, you're not a lawyer. I don't think so, are you? <laughs> not the last time I checked. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Certification. I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia. I don't know. <laughs> I think that counts. But, you know, are you going to get caught if you mail a can of beer to your friend? How do they even know? I mean, no one gets caught until they get caught. Sure. If you're selling beer in any meaningful numbers and you're, you know, they have a reason to open up the books, you could get in deep trouble. So as a beer writer and a bar owner, um, is there anything else that you really uh, is at the top of your mind going into 2020 about the beer world in general? Um, I hope that the beer community continues to uphold and actually come through on their uh, all their talk of inclusiveness mm-hmm. in the industry because right now it's not very dynamic in the way of the demographics of the industry. I think we need to see more people of color, more women coming through and, and changing up the industry because right now it's still looking pretty white. So I'm hoping that those who are in positions of power to hire people in the industry and to empower people in the industry do more of that. And I think hopefully in the next 10 years, it'll look a lot different. Definitely. No, that's a really good point. And obviously, hopefully that happens. 
Cool. Zach Beck, where can people find your beer writing? Uh, you can find me my beer writing up on Thrillist. Yay. Uh, my personal handle at ZMac on Twitter and on Thrillist. Yeah, and ABC Beer Co. in Manhattan. What's the what's the actual cross streets? Uh, Avenue C between 6th and 7th. Totally. If you're in New York, check it out. One of the best beer bars in the city, if not the best. Zach, thanks so much for coming on and talking about beer. Thanks, Will. And finally, we called up Thrillist writer-at-large Kevin Alexander in San Francisco to talk about fast, casual restaurants and why they'll be even bigger in 2020. All right, we have Kevin Alexander on the phone. Hey. I want to talk to you about fast, casual food. You have uh, your column, right? Too Fast, Too Casual? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And it's all about fast, casual food. Uh, can you define what fast, casual is and specifically how it's different from fast food? Sure. This is honestly one of these questions that I don't think has a completely clear answer. The way that I seem to try to define it was if you have a drive through you are fast food. And if you're not, you are fast casual was the, the like simplified version of that. Mm-hmm. But I've found that like even some Paneras have drive throughs and that kind of killed my thesis there. But I would say that higher price point, a little bit of an elevated experience would help push something into the fast casual space. But then again, I'm I'm making that up. And I don't think that there is really a clear defining point. Okay. Just the listeners, so they understand a little bit more about what my too fast, too casual column has been is I've spent the last year going around the country reviewing fast casual restaurants, national chains, as if they're restaurants that you might review for the New York Times, right? So you go three times, you're thoughtful about it, you try and think about eating through the entire menu. I talk to advertising executives about their marketing strategies and really try and like figure out, are they accomplishing what they're trying to accomplish? So what I found is some of the more successful ones, places like Five Guys and Jersey Mike's and Wingstop, they almost seem to have this contrarian focus on keeping it simple. Five Guys is a great example of that. Their menu is really tight. They basically spend no money on advertising and marketing and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, there's a little bit of this cult feeling to it, even though it's huge. I think part of that is that they just have refused to kind of give in and change the menus and and try and like uh, attract more and kind of dilute their product. And if you go into a place and you know that they only have one item or four items, there's something soothing about that will. And um, it calms me and it calms my soul. So, I mean, just really quick, because I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around this. Shake Shack, is that fast casual? I think Shake Shack is fast casual. Why specifically do you think Shake Shack is fast casual? I think the food is slightly elevated from the fast food model. I don't see any drive throughs in Shake Shacks. And I think that the price points are higher than fast food. And what about In-N-Out? Because I know a lot of people compare Shake Shack to In-N-Out. But for me, I've always thought that In-N-Out is much more of a fast food experience. It's more akin to a McDonald's than exactly. a Shake Shack. In-N-Out is, is fast food. I mean, they're known for their drive throughs The price point is cheaper. Uh, obviously, Chipotle is like the big one that everyone thinks of when they think of fast casual. There's a chain called Lemonade, which is mostly on the West Coast, that I covered that's starting to expand nationally. Uh, what do they do? <laughs> well, you're not going to believe it, Will. 
but they make <laughs> lemonade. <laughs> Is that all they do? No, no, they don't. They make food, like a, a mix of like health and comfort food, and they do everything a la carte, and it's in these like bright, airy spaces. But yeah, they have like a serious lemonade menu. They don't mess around in the lemonade space. <laughs> Is it a crowded space? I, I feel like it's just, you know... A lot of uh, young women and boys selling lemonade on the side of the road for like a quarter, right? That's their main competition. Yeah. Are they squeezing them out of town? A lot of the child lemonade stands are being kind of roughly pushed out by lemonade. That's the dark side of fast <laughs> yeah, casual. Exactly. So why do you think that fast casual food will be an even bigger deal in 2020 and beyond? Do you think it's something that consumers want or do you think it's just something that uh, fits business models better so they're just going to see it more? Yeah, I mean, I think right now we are in a really kind of scary place for restaurants and uh, especially sit down restaurants. And I think fast casual restaurants act as sort of a bridge for owners because they're cheaper to operate than a restaurant that spends more on front of the house staff. Currently, a lot of folks have gotten into the fast casual space. And I think it just speaks to how expensive it is to open and operate restaurants right now and due to like the saturation of restaurants in America. So fast casual restaurants certainly aren't going away. But that's why I'm so interested in it, because there's so many folks and a lot of folks that are coming from the fine dining space uh, are getting involved. And that's fascinating to me. I hate to be a downer here, but do you think that there are any drawbacks from more restaurants adopting this model? I mean, don't you? We've been out to restaurants before, you and I. Are you afraid that the quote unquote traditional restaurant model will die or be hurt, be maimed in some way by the rise Ooh, of these maimed. fast casual restaurants. And we as diners will suffer for it. Yeah. Uh, first of all, Will, great question. You like the word maimed. I, I did. I did. I think that there is a little bit of a bummer in eating in fast casual restaurants all the time. There is something magical about sitting down across the table from you and like being able to kind of focus on the conversation, you know, and have like someone give you a glass of wine and have your food there. And there, that's part of what makes the restaurant experience more magical. And when you're bussing your own table, when you're kind of like hovering over spots and trying to find a space, um, almost like you're in a mall food court, no matter how they try and sexify it and make it seem like it's a hip restaurant and it has reclaimed wood and Edison bulbs and like mezcal cocktails, like it, it, you still have to bust your table. You still have to, you know, go get your food and all of this sort of stuff. So there's something considerably less romantic about fast casual dining. And as you know, I'm all about the romance when it comes to restaurants. Well, I am too. And I feel like a lot of people are. But, you know, on the other hand, I feel like a lot of people aren't. And if they can spend less money and bust their own tables and order from a tablet or a counter or a robot, they might go for it. Yeah. Or a robot. <laughs> Do you think that there's one or maybe a couple in your mind that you think are not that well known nationally, but will become huge in the coming years? Man. Huge, I said. Huge. <laughs> huge. 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 Yeah. Well, I think one that's really interesting is out of San Francisco. It's Beat Rima. And basically, the way that it's defined is uh, Arabic comfort food. And uh, the chef 
is really paying homage to the foods of his Palestinian grandparents. And they came from Palestine, um, I think in like the 50s or 60s. And then his father opened these Burgermeister restaurants in America. And now he's taking over some of the old Burgermeister spaces and kind of going back to the foods, you know, of his grandparents and doing like a really great job with it. It's super popular in San Francisco. Um, I'm not sure if he has plans to expand it completely nationally, but he's growing it slowly right now in the city. I'd say like that's definitely a place to watch for. I think a really interesting thing right now is happening with Junzi Kitchen, which is like a fast casual Chinese chain. Basically, they created a fund to help buy and modernize older Chinese American like takeout joints, right? Um, with the idea of kind of helping keep their identities alive, modernize the back of the house, um, you know, keep the menus that make sense, but just help them kind of transition into the new world. So those are two fast, casual restaurants that I would definitely keep my eye on. Cool. So keep your eyes out for that and keep your eyes out for Kevin Alexander's Too Fast, Too Casual column on Thrillist. Kevin, this is great. I might get some Shake Shack tonight and I'll let you know how it goes. I really want to know. Well, can, can, we, uh, can we FaceTime while you eat? Like normal? Yeah. Why would we break that routine now? <laughs> okay. Perfect. <laughs> All days. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Thanks so much, man. It was my pleasure, Will. There's a lot to look forward to in 2020, obviously. What am I looking forward to the most in 2020? Seeing all of your five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It means a lot to us, so if you like to listen, let us know. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate all our guests today, Kat Thompson, Tony Maravich, Jeremy Jakobowitz, Nicole Taylor, Zach Mack, and last but certainly not least, Kevin Alexander for coming on and talking about 2020. The future looks bright, especially for food. All right, so podcasts just don't make themselves. I want to thank Jim D'Amico, Megan Kirsch, and Ocean McAdams on the Thrillist side for making all this happen. Brett Kushner, David Zwick, and Emily Feld, our Group 9 fam. My podcast partner in crime, Molly Schulson, who produced this episode and did a great job, if I do say so myself. iHeartRadio's Mangish Hatakudar, our editor, Randy Scott Carroll, and of course, our faithful mixer, Ernie Indradap. Okay, we'll see you next week. Happy New Year.